What's better than Anchor's podcast creation tools? Nothing. Mankind has always searched for evidence of God's perfection, and we found it. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place for free, which you can use straight from your phone or computer. The creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and the lesser of the podcast platforms like Stitcher. You can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. I've made $5, and I've been doing this for three months. So, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Before I start the show, I feel like there should be a warning. I'm reading public domain books and short stories and whatever else. Uh, Some of it may be offensive. I don't read these things before, so I don't review it, so it's kind of just by chance. So if anything in here is offensive, or most likely with these really old books, uh, bigoted, uh, don't hold me responsible. I'll be just as surprised as you are. And with that, enjoy this episode of Leaves of Glen. I am Glenn Nuzzles. Guys, uh, work sucks. It's been eating up my whole week, and I haven't had time to do any podcasts or edit the one I did with Ben on Monday, so it's just been dead silence for a while. Uh, ben even sent me a text message saying that the Nuzzle House Audiobook Network has let him down with his expectation of how many podcasts should go out. I reminded him that I'm on call this week, and like the last time this happened, I just can't do anything. So, Ben, if you're listening... Uh, screw off. Let's dive into where I left off. Uh, the last time I read this. Uh, my notes say it was chapter 3. Where Lord Harry spends the first half just talking to his uncle about Dorian's salacious past with his complicated mother. And that just makes Lord Henry... Henry, Harry... He's got a nickname of Harry, and so it just keeps throwing me off in my notes. Lord Harry loves it. I clearly have the edited version of this book because uh, there's a lot of kind of alluding to why Harry loves Dorian so much without actually directly saying it. Uh, I have a hard time believing anyone back in the day reading the edited version thought to themselves, wow, they're just just real good friends. Um, So Harry's obsessed And also he learns that American women are a thing that uh, English guys like to date. Turns out, much like 10 years ago here in America, uh, probably the the more grosser guys, the less attractive men in England would go over to America and scoop up an American woman who wear all the pretty French dresses and are so striking. Uh, Because apparently they didn't know any better. Much like here in America... Ten years ago, I knew guys, two of them, that went out to Japan because they weren't attractive men. They go to Japan. Apparently, people and women in Japan didn't really seem to know what was going on or the difference or whatever. Thought maybe that all American men are eat a lot of Cheetos and don't smell good. 
and uh, came back home with them and got married. I think they've learned their lessons since. I haven't heard about it happening so often. But that was a thing. It's good to see that what goes around comes around. So Lord Henry goes to his Aunt Agatha's house, where she's having a lunch with her friends. And they are all sitting around talking, and Dorian's there, of course, because Harry's got to drag him wherever he goes. And uh, so Lord Henry starts talking about hedonism again and his Epicurean lifestyle. It's kind of getting to be a little bit like the Iron Heel. Like, clearly the author has a message, a philosophy, and he's just going to keep driving it home. So every chapter we have to deal with Lord Harry talking about how you got to get nasty if you really want to enjoy your life. And it, uh, it works all the old ladies in that room into a lather. And they love it. They invite him over to their house to have uh, dinners and brunches and talk more about it. So he's kind of becoming like a kind of a, a, a conversation piece. Uh, and then Lord Harry and Dorian go out to take a walk and look at life. So when making my notes, not a lot to point out. But uh, still, the book's pretty good. It's written pretty well. Uh, it's just not a lot of big plot points happening in each chapter, but that's fine. I'm enjoying it anyways. So let's <coughs> get into chapter four. Chapter four. One afternoon, a month later, Dorian Gray was reclining in a luxurious armchair in the little library of Lord Henry's house in Mayfair. It was, in its way, a very charming room, with its high-paneled wainscoting of olive-stained oak, its cream-colored frieze and ceiling of raised plasterwork, and its brick-dust-felt carpet strewn with silk, long-fringed Persian rugs. <gasps> that was a really long sentence that only had commas. On a tiny, sadwood table stood a statuette by Clodon, and beside it lay a copy of Les Saint-Nouveaux, I am just making up the French words at this point. Bound for Margaret of Valois by Clovis Eve and powdered with the gilt daisies that Queen had selected for her device. Some large blue china jars and parrot tulips were ranged on the mantel shelf. And through the small leaded panes of the windows streamed the apricot-colored light of a summer day in London. Lord Henry had not yet come in. He was always late on principle, his principle being that punctuality is the thief of time. And so the lad was looking rather sulky. As with listless fingers, he turned over the pages of an elaborately illustrated edition of Manon de Lescourt that he had found in one of the bookcases. The formal monotonous ticking of the Louis Quator's clock annoyed him. Once or twice, he thought of going away. At last... He heard a step outside, and the door opened. How late you are, Harry, he murmured. I'm afraid it's not Harry, Mr. Gray, answered a shrill voice. Ugh. He glanced quickly around and rose to his feet. I beg your pardon, I thought. You thought it was my husband. It is only his wife. <laughs> talking about herself in the third person. You must let me introduce myself. I know you quite well by your photographs. I think my husband has got 17 of them. Not 17, Lady Henry. Well, 18 then. And I saw you with him the other night at the opera. She laughed nervously as she spoke. 
and watched him with her vague, forget-me-not eyes. She was a curious woman whose dresses always looked as if they had been designed in a rage and put on in a tempest. She was usually in love with somebody, and as her passion was never returned, she had kept all her illusions. She tried to look picturesque, but only succeeded in being untidy. Her name was Victoria, and she had a perfect mania for going to church. That was at Lohigrin, Lady Henry, I think. Yes, it was at dear Lohigrin. <laughs> I like Wagner's music better than anybody's. It is so loud that one can talk the whole time without other people hearing what one says. That is a great advantage, don't you uh, think so, Mr. Gray? The same nervous staccato laugh broke from her thin lips, and her fingers began to uh, play with the long tortoiseshell paper knife. Dorian smiled and shook his head. I am afraid I don't think so, Lady Henry. I never talk during music, at least during good music. If one hears bad music, it's one's duty to drown it in conversation. Ah, that is one of Harry's views, isn't it, Mr. Gray? I always hear Harry's views from his friends. It is the only way I get to know of them. But you must not think I don't like good music. I adore it, but I'm afraid of it. It makes me, oh, too romantic. I have simply worshipped pianists, two at a time, sometimes. Harry tells me I don't know what it is about them. Perhaps it is that they are foreigners. They all are, aren't they? Even those that are born in England become foreigners after a time, don't they? <laughs> it's so clever of them, and such a compliment to art. Makes it quite cosmopolitan, doesn't it? You have never been to any of my parties, have you, Mr. Gray? You must come. I can't afford orchids, but I spare no expense in foreigners. This is getting weird. They make one's rooms look so picturesque. Ugh. But here is Harry. Harry, I came in to look for you, to ask you something. I forget what it was, and I found Mr. Gray here. We have had such a pleasant chat about music. We have quite the same ideas. No, I think our ideas are quite different. But as he has been most pleasant, I am so glad I've seen him. I am charmed, my love, quite charmed, said Lord Henry, elevating his dark, crescent-shaped eyebrows and looking at them both with an amused smile. So sorry I am late, Dorian. I went to look after a piece of old brocade in the Warder Street and had to bargain for hours for it. Nowadays, people know the price of everything and the value of nothing. I am afraid I must be going, exclaimed Lady Henry, breaking an awkward silence with her uh, silly, sudden laugh. I have promised to drive with the Duchess. Goodbye, Mr. Gray. Goodbye, Harry. You are dining out, I suppose. So am I. Perhaps I shall see you at Lady Thornsbury's. I dare say, my dear, said Lord Henry, shutting the door behind her as, looking like a bird of paradise that had been out all night in the rain, she flitted out of the room, leaving a faint odor of frangipani. Then he lit a cigarette and flung himself down on the sofa. Never marry a woman with straw-colored hair, Dorian, he said after a few puffs. Why, Harry? Because they are so sentimental. But I like sentimental people. 
Never marry at all, Dorian. Men marry because they are tired. Women because they are curious. Both are disappointed. I don't think I am likely to marry, Harry. I am too much in love. That is one of your aphorisms. I am putting it into practice as I do everything that you say. Who are you in love with? Asked Lord Henry after a pause. With an actress, said Dorian Gray, blushing. Lord Henry shrugged his shoulders. That is a rather commonplace debut. But would not say so if you saw her, Harry. Who is she? Her name is Sybil Vane. Never heard of her. No one has. People will someday, however. She is a genius. My dear boy, no woman is a genius. <laughs> Women are a decorative sex. They never have anything to say, but they say it charmingly. Women represent the triumph of... Oh, getting a phone call. Not answering that. Women represent the triumph of matter over mind, just as men represent the triumph of mind over morals. Harry, how can you? My dear Dorian, it is quite true. I am analyzing women at the present, so I ought to know. The subject is uh, not so abstruse. As I thought it was, I find that ultimately there are only two kinds of women. The plain and the colored. The plain women are very useful. If you want to gain a reputation for respectability, you are merely to take them down to supper. The other women are very charming. They commit one mistake, however. They paint in order to try and look young. Our grandmothers painted in order to try and... Talk brilliantly. Rouge and esprit used to go together. That is all over now. As long as a woman can look ten years younger than her own daughter, she is perfectly satisfied. As for conversation, there are only five women in London we're talking to. And two of those can't be admitted into decent society. However, tell me about your genius. How long have you known her? My Harry, your views terrify me. Never mind that. How long have you known her? About three weeks. Where did you come across her? I will tell you, Harry, but you mustn't be unsympathetic about it. After all, it never would have happened if I had not met you. You filled me with a wild desire to know everything about life. For days after I met you, something seemed to throb in my veins. As I lounged in the park or strolled down Piccadilly... I used to look at everyone who passed me and wonder with mad curiosity what sort of lives they led. Some of them fascinated me. Others filled me with terror. There was an exquisite poison in the air. I had a passion for sensations. Well, one evening, about seven o'clock, I determined to go out in search of some adventure. I felt that this gray, monstrous London of ours, with its myriads of people, its sordid sinners, and its splendid sins, as you once phrased it, must have something in store for me. I fancied a thousand things. The mere danger gave me a sense of delight. I remembered what you had said to me on that wonderful evening when we first dined together, about the search for beauty being the real secret of life. I don't know what I expected, but I went out and wandered eastward, soon losing my way in a labyrinth of grimy streets and black grassless squares. About half past eight, I passed by an absurd little theater with great flaring gas jets and gaudy playbills. A hideous Jew. Oh, God. <laughs> well, this is the reason why I gave, gave you warnings at the beginning of the show. 
These old books could be horrible. Uh, let's just start that sentence over. A hideous Jew in the most amazing waistcoat I ever beheld in my life was standing at the entrance smoking a vile cigar. What does that look like? He had greasy ringlets and an enormous diamond blazed on the center of a soiled shirt. Have a box, my lord, he said when he saw me and took off his hat with an air of gorgeous civility. There was something about him, Harry, that amused me. He was such a monster. Uh, you will laugh at me, I know, but I really went in and paid the whole guinea for the stage box. To the present day, I can't make out why I did so. And yet, if I hadn't, my dear Henry, if I hadn't, I should have missed the most romance of my life. I see you are laughing. It's horrid of you. <laughs> I am not laughing, Dorian. At least I am not laughing at you. But you should not say the greatest romance of your life. You should say the first romance of your life. You will always be loved. And you will always be in love with love. A grand passion is the privilege of people who have nothing to do. That is the one use of the idle classes of a country. Don't be afraid. There are exquisite things in store for you. This is merely the beginning. Do you think my nature so shallow? cried Dorian Gray angrily. Angrily. No, I think your nature is so deep. How do, how do, how do you mean? My dear boy, the people who love only once in their lives are really the shallow people. What they call their loyalty and their fidelity, I call either the lethargy of custom or their lack of imagination. Faithfulness is to the emotional life what consistency is to the life of the intellect. Simply a confession of failure. Faithlessness! Exclamation point. I must analyze it someday. The passion for property is in it. There are many things that we would throw away if we were not afraid that the others might pick them up. But I don't want to interrupt you. Go on with your story. Well... I found myself seated in a horrid little private box with a vulgar drop scene staring me in the face. I looked out from behind the curtain and surveyed the house. It was a tawdry affair. All cupids and corticopias, like a third-rate wedding cake. The gallery and pit were fairly full, but the two rows of dingy stalls were quite empty, and there was a, hardly a person in what I suppose they called the dress circle. Women went about with ugh, oranges and ginger beer, and there was a terrible consumption of nuts going on. It must have been like the palmy days of the British drama. Just like, I would fancy, and very depressing, I began to wonder, what on earth should I do when I caught sight of the playbill? What do you think the play was, Harry? I should think uh, The Idiot Boy, or Dumb But Innocent. Our fathers used to like that sort of piece. I believe the longer I live, Dory, the more keenly I feel that whatever was good enough for our fathers is not good enough for us. In art, as in politics, les grands prix ont toujours tort, which is French that I don't know how to say. This play was good enough for us, Harry. It was Romeo and Juliet. I must admit I was rather annoyed at the idea of seeing Shakespeare done in such a wretched hole of a place still... I felt interested, in a sort of way. At any rate, I determined to wait for the first act. 
There was a dreadful orchestra, presided over by a young Hebrew who sat at a cracked piano. Ugh, that nearly drove me away. I can already tell this is going to start getting gross again. But at last, the drop scene was drawn up, and the play began. Romeo was a stout, elderly gentleman with corked eyebrows, a husky tragedy voice, and a figure like a beer barrel. Mercurio was almost as bad. He was played by the low comedian, who had introduced gags of his own and was on most friendly terms with the pit. They were both as grotesque as the scenery, and that looked as if it had come out of a country booth. Ah, but Juliet, Harry. Imagine a girl, hardly 17 years of age, with a little flower-like face, a small Greek head with plated coils of dark brown hair, eyes that were violet wells of passion... Lips that were like the petals of a rose. She was the loveliest thing I had ever seen in my life. You said to me once that pathos left you unmoved, but that beauty, uh, mere beauty, could fill your eyes with tears. I tell you, Harry, I could hardly see this girl for the mist of tears that came across me at her voice. I never heard such a voice. It was very low at first, with a deep mellow tones that seemed to fall singly upon one's ear. Then it became a little louder and sounded like a flute or a distant haunt boy. In the garden scene, it had all the tremulous ecstasy that one hears just before dawn when the nightingales are singing. There were moments later on when it had the wild passion of violins. You know how a voice can stir one? Your voice and the voice of Sybil Vane are two things that I shall never forget. When I close my eyes, I hear them, and each of them says something different. I don't know which to follow. Why should I not love her, Harry? I do love her. She is everything to me in life. Night after night, I go see her play. One evening, she is Rosalind, and the next evening, she is Imogen. I have seen her die in the gloom of an Italian tomb, sucking the poison from her lover's lips. I have watched her wandering through the forest of Arden disguised as a pretty boy in hose and doublet and dainty cap. She has been mad and has come into the presence of a guilty king and given him rue to wear and bitter herbs to taste of. She has been innocent and the black hands of jealousy have crushed her reed-like throat. I have seen her in every age and in every costume. Ordinary women never appeal to one's imagination. They are limited to their century. No glamour ever transfigures them. One knows uh, their minds as easily as one knows their bonnets. One can always find them. There's no mystery in any of them. They ride in the park in the morning and chatter at tea parties in the afternoon. They have their stereotyped smile and their fashionable manner. They are quite obvious. But an actress... How different an actress is, Harry. Why didn't you tell me that the only thing worth loving is an actress? Because I have loved so many of them, Dorian. Oh, yes. Horrid people with dyed hair and painted faces. Don't run down dyed hair and painted faces. There is an extraordinary charm in them sometimes, said Lord Henry. I wish now I had not told you about Sybil Vane. You could not have uh, helped... Telling me, Dorian, all through your life you will tell me everything you do. Oh, that's controlling. Yes, Harry, I believe that is true. I cannot help telling you things. You have a curious influence over me. If I ever uh, did a crime, I would come and confess it to you. You would understand me. 
People like you, the willful sunbeams of life, don't commit crimes, Dory, and I am much obliged for the compliment. All the same. And, now tell me, reach me the matches, like a good boy. Thanks. What are your actual relations with Sybil Vane? Dorian Gray leapt to his feet, with flushed cheeks and burning eyes. Harry, Sybil Vane is sacred. It is the only sacred things that are worth touching, Dorian, said Lord Henry, with a strange touch of pathos in his voice. But why should you be so annoyed? I suppose she will belong to you someday. When one is in love, one always begins by deceiving oneself. And one always ends by deceiving others. That is what the world calls a romance. You know her at any rate, I suppose? Eh, of course I know her. On the first night I was at the theater, the horrid old Jew came around to the box after the performance. Ugh, I was over and offered to take me behind the scenes and introduce me to her. I was furious with him and told him that Juliet had been dead for hundreds of years and that her body was lying in a marble tomb in Verona. <laughs> I think from the blank look of amazement that he was under the impression that I had taken too much champagne or something. <laughs> I am not surprised. Then he asked me if I wrote for any of the newspapers. I told him I never even read them. He seemed terribly disappointed at that, and confided to me that all the dramatic critics were in a conspiracy against him, and that they were every one of them to be bought. I should not wonder if he was quite right there, but on the other hand, uh, judging from their appearance, most of them cannot be all that expensive. Well, he seemed to think they were beyond his means, laughed Dorian. By this time, however, the lights were being put out in the theater, and I had to go. He wanted me to try some cigars that he strongly recommended. I declined. The next night, of course, I arrived at the place again. When he uh, saw me, he made me low bow and assured me that I was a magnificent patron of the arts. He was a most offensive brute, though he had an extraordinary passion for Shakespeare. He told me once with an air of pride that his five bankruptcies were entirely due to the bard. As he insisted on calling him, he seemed to think it was a distinction. It was a distinction, my dear Dorian, a great distinction. Most people become bankrupt, though having invested too heavily in the prose of life. To have ruined oneself over poetry is an honor. But when did you first speak to Miss Sybil Vane? And there we're going to take a break. Let's take a sneak peek at a new book from Penguin Random House. This one's called The Thrifty Guide to Medieval Times, a handbook for time travelers <laughs> by Jonathan W. Stokes, illustrated by Xavier Bonnet. It's part of the uh, the th Thrifty Guides. It's a children's middle grade books category. Uh, this format's not eligible for the Reader Rewards program, so maybe it's not worth picking up. Comes out August 20th, 2019. Looks like I already missed that one. It's out now. Go get it. About the Thrifty Guide to Medieval Times, the kid-friendly series that makes history approachable, engaging, and funny, exclamation point, from the publishing house that brought you the Who Was books. The Thrifty Guide to Medieval Times, a handbook for time travelers, is a snappy, informative, illustrated travel guide with everything the sensible time traveler needs to know, like... 
where can I find the best hovel? What are my healthcare options if I catch the Black Plague? How can I avoid being attacked by pillaging Huns? And most importantly, why on earth would anyone want to travel back to the medieval times? <laughs> this book is designed as a parody of Fodor's guides, complete with humorous maps, reviews of places to stay and top attractions. Don't miss a jousting tournament, but watch out for the lances. <laughs> and tips on whom to have lunch with. Murderous Queen Olga of Kiev. Naturally, just don't drink or eat anything around her. <laughs> and if you have time travel machine and could take a vacation anywhere in history, this is the only guidebook series you would need. This book has no reviews. Back to the story. The Third Night she had been playing Rosalind. I could not help going around. I had thrown her some flowers. She had looked at me, at least I fancied she had. The old Jew was persistent. Ugh. She seemed determined to take me behind, so I consented. It was curious, my not wanting to know her, wasn't it? Eh, I don't think so. My dear Henry, why? I will tell you some other time. Now I want to know about the girl. Sybil? Oh, she was so shy and so gentle. There is something of a child about her. Her eyes opened wide in exquisite wonder when I told her what I thought of her performance, and she seemed quite unconscious of her power. I think we were both rather nervous. The old Jew stood grinning at the doorway of the dusty green room, making elaborate speeches about us both, while we stood looking at each other like children. He would insist on calling me my lord, so I had to assure Sybil that I was not anything of the kind. She said quite simply to me, you look more like a prince. I must call you Prince Charming. <laughs> Upon my word, Dory, Miss Sybil knows how to pay compliments. Oh, you don't understand her, Harry. She regarded me merely as a person in a play. She knows nothing of life. She lives with her mother, a faded, tired woman who played Lady Capulet in a sort of magenta dressing wrapper on her first name. And it looks as if she had seen better days. Oh, I know that look. It depresses me, murmured Lord Henry, examining his rings. The Jew wanted to tell me her history, but I said it did not interest me. Ugh, my skin. You're quite right. There is always something infinitely mean about other people's tragedies. Sybil is the only thing I care about. What is it to me where she came from? From her little head to her little feet. She is absolutely and entirely divine. Every night... Uh, my, uh, my life, I go see her act, and every night she is more marvelous. That is the reason, I suppose, that you never dine with me now. I thought you must have some curious romance on hand. You have, but it is not quite what I expected. My dear Henry, we either lunch or sup together every day, and I have been to the opera with you several times, said Dorian, opening his blue eyes in wonder. You always come dreadfully late. Well, I can't help going to see Sybil play. He cried, even if only for a single act. If I get hungry for her presence, and when I think of the wonderful soul that is hidden away in that little ivory body, I am filled with awe. You can dine with me tonight, Dorian, can't you? He shook his head. Tonight she is Imogen, he answered. And tomorrow she will be Juliet. When is she? Sybil Vane. Never, I congratulate you. How horrid you are. She is all the great heroines of the world in one. She is more than an individual. 
You laugh, but I tell you she has genius. I love her, and I must make her love me. You know all the secrets of life. Tell me how to charm Sybil Vane to love me. I want to make Romeo jealous. I want the dead lovers of the world to hear our laughter and grow sad. I want to breathe of our passion and to stir their dust into consciousness, to, to wake their ashes into pain. My God, Harry, how I worship her. <sighs> he was walking up and down the room as he spoke. Hectic spots of red burned on his cheek. He was terribly excited. Lord Henry watched him with a subtle sense of pleasure. How different he is now from the shy, frightened boy that he had met in Basil Hallwood's studio. His nature had developed like a flower, had borne blossoms of scarlet flame. Out of its uh, secret hiding places crept his soul, and desire had come to meet on its way. What do you propose to do, said Lord Henry at last. I want you and Basil to come with me some night and see her act. I have not the slightest fear of the result. You are certain to acknowledge her genius. Then we must get her out of the Jew's hands. Ugh, she is bound to him for three years, at least for two years and eight months. From the present uh, time, I shall have to pay him something, of course. When all that is settled, I shall take a West End theater and bring her out properly. It will make the world as mad as she has made me. That would be impossible, my dear boy. Yes, she will. She has not merely art, consummate art instinct in her, but she has personality also. And you have often told me that it is personalities, not principles, that move the age. Well, what night shall we go? Well, let me see. Today's Tuesday. Let us fix tomorrow. She plays Julia tomorrow. All right. The Bristol is at 8 o'clock, and I will get Basil. Not eight, Harry. Please, half past six. We must be there before the curtain rises. You must see her in her first act, where she meets Romeo. Half past six? What an hour. It'll be like having a, a meat tea or reading an English novel. A meat tea. It must be seven. No gentleman dines before seven. Shall you, you see Basil between this and then, or shall I write to him? Dear Basil, I have not laid eyes on him for a week. He is rather horrid of me. <coughs> he has sent me my portrait in the most wonderful frame, especially designed by himself. And though I am a little jealous of the picture for being a whole month younger than I am, I must admit that I delight in it. Perhaps you had better write to him. I, I don't want to see him alone. He says things that annoy me. He gives me good advice. Lord Henry smiled. People are very fond of giving away what they need most for themselves. It is what I call the depth of generosity. <laughs> oh, Basil is the best of fellows, but it seems to me that he's just a bit of a Philistine. Since I have known you, Harry, I have discovered that. Uh, Basil, my dear boy, puts everything that is charming in him to his work. The consequence is that he has nothing left for life but his prejudices and his principles and his common sense. The only artists I have ever known who are personally delightful are bad artists. Good artists simply exist in what they make and consequently are perfectly uninteresting in what they are. A great poet, a really great poet, is the most unpoetical of all creatures. Mm -hmm. But inferior poets are absolutely fascinating. The worse their rhymes are, the more picturesque they look. The mere fact of having published a book of second-rate sonnets makes a man quite irresistible. He lives the poetry that he cannot write. The others write the poetry they dare not realize. Uh, 
I wonder, is it really so, Harry? said Dorian Gray, putting some perfume on his handkerchief out of a large gold-topped bottle that stood on the table. It must be if you say it. And now I'm off. Imogen is waiting for me. Don't forget about tomorrow. Goodbye. As he left the room, Lord Henry's heavy eyelids drooped. and He began to think. Certainly few people had ever interested him so much as Dorian Gray, and yet the lad's mad adoration of someone else caused him not the slightest pang of annoyance or jealousy. He was pleased by it. It made him a more interesting study. He had always been enthralled by the methods of natural science, but the ordinary subject matter of that science had seemed to him trivial and of no import. And so it had begun by vivisecting himself, as he ended by vivisecting others. Human life! That appeared to him the one thing worth investigating. Compared to it, there was nothing else of any value. It was true that as one watched life in its curious crucible of pain and pleasure, one could not wear over one's face a mask of glass, nor keep sulfurous fumes from troubling the brain and making the imagination turbid with monstrous fantasies and misshapen dreams. They were poisons so subtle that to know their properties, one had to sicken of them. There were maladies so strange that one had to pass through them if one sought to understand their nature. And yet, what a great reward one received. How wonderful the whole world became to one. To note the curious hard logic of passion and the emotional colored life of the intellect. To observe where they met and where they separated. At what point they were in unison and at what point they were at discord. There was a delight in that. What matter was the cost was, one could never pay too high a price for any sensation. He was conscious, and the thought brought a gleam of pleasure into his own brown agate eyes. That it was though certain words of his, musical words, said with a musical utterance, that Dorian Gray's soul had turned to this white girl and bowed in worship before her. To a large extent, the lad was his own creation. He had made him premature, and that was something. Ordinary people waited till life disclosed to them their secrets, but to the few, to the elect, the mysteries of life were revealed before the veil was drawn away. Sometimes this was the effect of art, and chiefly, of the art of literature, which dealt immediately with the passions of the intellect. But now, and then, a complex personality took the place and assumed the office of art, as indeed, in its way, a real work of art. Life having its elaborate masterpieces, just as poetry has, or sculpture, or painting. Yes, the lad was premature. He was gathering his harvest while he was yet spring. The pulse and passion of youth were in him, and he was becoming self-conscious. It was delightful to watch him with his beautiful face and his beautiful soul. He was a thing to wonder at. It was no wonder how all it had ended, and it was destined to end. He was like one of those gracious figures in a pageant or a play whose joys seem to be remote from one, but whose sorrows stir one's sense of beauty, and whose wounds are like red roses. Soul and body, body and soul, how mysterious they were. There was animalism in the soul, and the body had its moments of spirituality. The senses could refine, and the intellect could degrade. Who could say where the fleshly impulse ceased, or the psychological impulse began? How shallow were the arbitrary definitions of the ordinary psychologist? And yet, how difficult to decide between the claims of the various schools? Was the soul of a shadow seated in the house of sin? Or was the body really in the soul, as 
Gordano Bruno thought. The separation of spirit from matter was a mystery, and the union of the spirit with the matter is also is a mystery also. He began to wonder whether he could ever make psychology so absolute a science that each little spring of life would be revealed to us. As it was, we always misunderstood ourselves and rarely understood others. Experience was of no ethical value. It was merely the name men gave to their mistakes. Moralists had, as a rule, regarded it as a mode of warning and claimed for it a certain ethical efficiency in the formation of character, had praised it as something that taught us what to follow and showed us what to avoid. But there was no motive power in experience. It was as little of an active cause as conscious itself. All that it really demonstrated was that our future would be the same as our past and that the sin we had done once and with loathing we would do many times and with joy. It's clear to him, this is just going on and on, that the experimental method was the only method by which one could arrive at any scientific analysis of the passions, and certainly Dorian Gray was a subject made to this hand and seemed to promise a rich and fruitful results. His sudden mad love for Sybil Vane was a psychological phenomenon of no small interest. There is no doubt that curiosity had much to do with the curiosity and the desire for new experiences, yet it was not a simple but rather very complex passion. Where was it that the purely sensuous instinct of the boyhood had been transformed or the workings of the imagination changed into something that seemed to the lad himself to be remote from sense and for whatever reason was all the more dangerous? It was the passions about whose oranges had deceived ourselves and tyrannized most likely over us our weakest motives and those whose natures were more unconscious. It often happened that when we thought we were experimenting on others that we were actually experimenting on ourselves. While Lord Henry sat dreaming on these things, a knock came to the door. Thank God that whole thing is over. And his valet entered and reminded him it was time to dress for dinner. He got up, looked out into the street. The sunset had smitten into scarlet, gold the upper windows of the houses opposite. The panes glowed like plates of heated metal. The sky above was like a faded rose. He thought of his friend's young, fiery-colored life and wondered how it was all going to end. When he arrived home, about half past twelve o'clock, he saw a telegram lying on the hall table. He opened it and found it was from Dorian Gray. It was to tell him that he was engaged to be married to Sybil Vane. Well, there you have it. Uh, Dorian Gray's exciting life. What have we learned so far in this chapter? We learned that being a Jewish person is, to Dorian Gray, the worst thing in the world. We also learned that you can fall in love with a tiny ivory woman. Um, Oh, and thanks to Lord Henry, we found out that women have almost no value except for being uh, an arm piece. Great book. Uh, I remember this book being a lot better, but it was a long time ago, like 10 years ago I read this thing, so I forgot all about the uh, anti-Semitism and uh, sexism and the long, long rambling diatribes of a man trying to fancy himself intelligent. So, it looks like we got another author who thinks pretty highly of himself and is projecting all of his 
personal stuff into this book. And we got a lot more pages to go through. So make sure to tune in next time as I slowly find that I like this book less and less. <laughs>